and welcome to episode 17 of the Giants of the Faith podcast. I'm Robert Daniels, and I'm the host of this show, where we focus on individuals from the age of the church who have lived out their faith in a unique or interesting way. They are people who are giants in the history of Christendom. These are Christian Hall of Famers. Today's episode features perhaps the greatest American intellectual and theologian, the man who is sometimes called the last Puritan, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was born on the 5th of October, 1703, in East Windsor, Connecticut, USA, to parents Timothy and Esther. He was the fifth of 11 children and the only boy. I can't even imagine what life must have been like for him growing up. Timothy Edwards was a pastor as well as a tutor and a teacher, and apparently gave all of his children an excellent home education. Jonathan entered Yale College as a 12-year-old in 1716. Edwards was interested in the natural sciences, and he thought scientific study would be his route in life. He wrote several books and papers on topics as varied as flying spiders and the properties of light and optics. Unlike some others of his era who saw science as a replacement for theology and moved toward deism, Edwards saw the natural laws as designed and gifted of God. He saw nothing in the natural order of things that denied the existence of God or the veracity of the Christian faith. Edwards would often take walks in the woods, just have time to think and contemplate life. Inspired by John Locke's An Essay Concerning Human Understanding, he would come up with a subject he wanted to do some thinking about, and then ponder it as he walked through the forest. Then, when he returned home, he'd put his thoughts down into meticulously kept notebooks. Much of this thought and consideration formed the basis for sermons later in his life. Now remember, this is a 13 to 14 year old kid doing this. That's absolutely amazing. He completed his undergraduate studies in 1720 at age 17 and began his graduate career in 1721. As a graduate student, he studied philosophy and theology. He was interested in the debates between the traditional Calvinism of his forebears and the Vogue deism, Arminianism, and other movements of the day. In 1723, Edwards dedicated his life to Christ. Though he had known of God his whole life, it wasn't until then that he felt a personal calling toward God. While studying, he took an eight-month stint as a temporary pastor of a Presbyterian church in New York. He enjoyed his time there, and he was sad to leave when his time there expired. He returned to Yale, finished his degree, and tutored there for about two years. 1727 was an eventful year for Jonathan. First, he married the longtime object of his courtship and affection, 17-year-old Sarah Pierpont. He'd met Sarah when she was 13 and was charmed by her conversation and her openness about her personal relationship with God. For years, Sarah had had periods of heavenly exaltation where she would enter an ecstatic state where she was full of Christ's light and love and witness visions for hours at a time. This personal relationship with Christ was a draw to Edwards and something completely different than what he'd experienced. He wrote of her, She is of a wonderful sweetness, calmness, and universal benevolence of mind, especially after those seasons in which this great God has manifested himself to her mind. She will sometimes go about from place to place, singing sweetly, and seems to be always of joy and pleasure, and no one knows for what. She loves to be alone 
and to wander in the fields and on the mountains, and seems to have someone invisible always conversing with her. A family was very important to Edwards. Jonathan and Sarah would, nearly every evening, take a horseback ride where they would discuss the events of the day or the studies that Edwards was undertaking. They went on to have 11 children, and one of their grandchildren, Aaron Burr Jr., was a revolutionary hero and eventual vice president of the United States. Edwards set aside one hour before dinner each day to help his children with their studies. He would pray over and bless each of them in turn, and every time he traveled to speak, he took one of his children with him. Every house should be a little church, he said. The other major event in 1727 was Edwards's ordination as a minister at his grandfather Solomon Stoddard's church in Northampton, Massachusetts. His role was as a scholar-pastor, and he spent about 12 hours a day in study there. He worked there for two years until, following his grandfather's death in 1729, he was elevated to the role of the sole preacher of the church. Initially, Edward's sermons were very detailed and pre-planned down to the nth degree. As such, they could be somewhat dry. As he became more comfortable behind the pulpit, he began to use only brief notes and outlines. This allowed him to inject his sermons with the passion that he felt concerning them. It wasn't the stereotypical, fiery preaching style that most imagine, however. His was a dispassionate style, preferring that content do the work rather than the presentation. He began to develop his own preaching voice, and the Holy Spirit used it to move people by the thousands. He encouraged his flock to both acknowledge their own sinfulness, but to also understand that Christ trades that sinfulness for goodness. He wrote, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is our proper and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven, fully to enjoy God, is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. In 1733, Edwards' preaching of sermons like Justification by Faith began to stir a revival in his church, and beyond, as they were published and widely read throughout New England. His message was reaching even young people. He spoke out against their late-night drinking and carousing, and many of them heeded his warnings. Over the course of the next year, about 300 out of the roughly 1,100 youth in the area joined Northampton Church. This was the start of the Great Awakening in America, in which thousands of subjects in the American colonies turned their hearts from a formal, ritualistic religion toward a personal relationship with God. Edwards did not travel much to preach, but rather folks came to hear him from miles around. The revival began to spread through the Connecticut Valley. Edwards continued to preach on the need for sinners to be saved by a righteous God. Some, rather than repenting of their sins and giving them over to the Lord, took that burden upon themselves. One of these, Joseph Hawley, was a member of Edwards's congregation and the head of an influential Northampton family. Edwards' assertion that work for the kingdom was lasting, whereas personal accomplishments were not, didn't sit well with some of the more successful of the area. Hawley was one of these, 
and on June 1, 1735, he took his own life. This suicide, along with a few others, brought the first stage of the Great Awakening to a close. In 1739, British preacher George Whitefield arrived in the colonies for a revival tour. He'd read Edwards' writings, and he made a special point to visit him. As he and Edwards became acquainted, Edwards helped him plan his tour through the 13 colonies. Whitefield would eventually travel over 5,000 miles across America and preach hundreds of sermons to all classes of folks, slave, free, rich, poor, it didn't matter to him. Revival was back and in full force. Edwards wrote of Whitefield's sermon at Edwards' church, The congregation was extraordinarily melted, almost the whole assembly being in tears for a great part of the time. And that included Edwards. He wept bitterly thinking of the revival that his congregation needed. Uh, Edwards preached his most famous sermon, and the most famous sermon in American history, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, in 1741. Edwards had been invited to preach at a church in Enfield, Connecticut, that had not been moved by the awakening. He used this sermon to impress on his listeners and readers that hell is a real place, and only the goodness and righteousness of God keeps men from it, and that the wicked are under threat and could be taken at any moment, and that only through Christ can one be saved from this reality. He makes this point clearly when he writes, O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. Tis a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of fire and wrath, that you are held over in the hand of that God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread, with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it, and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator, and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do, to induce God to spare you one moment. Many have taken this sermon and others to show that Edwards was obsessed with hell and damnation, but they ignore the multitudes of sermons that Edwards preached on love and the goodness of the Christian faith. It would be worth the while to be religious if it were only for the pleasantness of it, he wrote in one sermon. He saw the beauty and majesty of God expressed throughout his creation, whether in the majesty of the forest or in the minute details of the smallest insects. His view of the Christian life was one of happiness and faithfulness. It is not contrary to Christianity that a man should love himself, or, which is the same thing, should love his own happiness. That a man should love his own happiness is as necessary to his nature as the faculty of the will is. As revival continued, the clergy in New England became divided. Some preferred the old, more formal way of worshiping. Church services were planned and orderly. The psalms were sung. Everything was predictable and rote. These ministers were known as the old lights, and those, like Edwards, who welcomed a new order to worship, were called the new lights. Edward was a great supporter of contemporary Christian music. He encouraged the singing of new hymns, songs that today some hold in reverence while they sneer at newer music, or at one time sneered at themselves in Edward's day. Throughout his life, and my mom will appreciate this, Edwards was addicted to chocolate. 
he would send for it from Boston, often encouraging those traveling to the metropolis to bring some back for him. He'd basically beg them not to eat it all before they returned to him. This isn't a hugely consequential fact of his life, but it's interesting nonetheless and helps to humanize a figure that is sometimes seen as stern and almost inhuman. As more and more people joined his church, Edwards began to be skeptical of new admissions. Some that joined didn't live out the faith that they proclaimed. Since the days of his grandfather, the church in Northampton had been, revolutionarily so, open to admittance to any and all in the community. Edwards wanted to change this. He wanted applicants to undergo a spiritual examination to see if their life matched their profession of faith. This wasn't popular with the long-standing members of the church, and for four years, from 1744 to 1748, no new members were admitted. In 1749, when a new applicant for membership, Mary Holbert, was approved by Edwards but denied by the church membership committee, Edwards wanted to call a council to decide the issue of membership. The church agreed, but their desire was for the council to consider Edwards's fitness and his separation from the church. On May 3, 1750, such a council was called. The council, which consisted of clergy from nearby churches and lay members of the congregation, met on June 3rd. The chief spokesman against Edwards was Joseph Hawley, son of the man who had killed himself 15 years previous. After three days, the council recommended that Edwards' employment be terminated. The church voted 230 to 23 in favor, and Edwards preached his last sermon at Northampton on July 1, 1750. After leaving Northampton, Edwards was invited to lead a church in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Stockbridge was, at the time, a frontier outpost on the western edge of Massachusetts. Edwards accepted the call and led the church there from 1751 to 1757. Stockbridge had been established as a missionary center. Its purpose was twofold. First, to civilize the Indians, and second, to enlist their support against the French. As such, not only did he minister to the white population, but he also served as a missionary to the Housatonic Indians. He preached for them through an interpreter and became quite an advocate for Indian affairs. His time in Stockbridge was also spent writing and researching. He wrote several books and essays that are classic Edwards, including his essay on original sin, a dissertation concerning the end for which God created the world, an inquiry into the modern prevailing notions respecting the freedom of the will, and other mouthfuls. His task and talent was to take the tenets of the Reformation and Puritanism, such as Calvinism, and apply them to the problems in modern life. It's interesting that he produced such a great volume of work in a place off the map where even paper was in short supply. In the more metropolitan areas where he'd always served, his writings and notebooks were neat and orderly, captured and bound on plentiful paper. In Stockbridge, however, his notebooks are cobbled together from scraps, bits of newspaper, empty spaces on received letters, anything that could be got hold of. Paper that would normally be thrown in the trash, he pasted together and used as notebook paper. He wrote in the margins, left and right, up and down. Some of his best and most cherished works were composed this way. Jonathan's son-in-law, 
Aaron Burr Sr., was serving as president of the College of New Jersey when he died in 1758. After much persuasion, Edwards left Stockbridge to replace Burr there as president. He took office February 16, 1758. Edwards was a proponent of the smallpox inoculation, and he was inoculated himself as a means to encourage his students to take the treatment. What they would do is they would take flakes from the sores of someone with smallpox and then have the subject inhale them through the nostrils in hopes that a mild case would develop, allowing the recipient to fight it off. About 2-3% to of the people that were given this inoculation ended up dying, and Edwards was one of those. He succumbed to the infection, and he died on March 22, 1758. His last recorded words were in a letter to his daughter Lucy. Dear Lucy, it seems to me to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you. Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife, and tell her that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. And I hope she will be supported under so great a trial, and submit cheerfully to the will of God. And as to my children, you are now to be left fatherless, which I hope will be an inducement to you all to look to seek a father who will never fail you. He was a great example to his children to the end. Edwards is considered the greatest theologian in American history, and in many circles, America's greatest thinker. He and his wife left a legacy, not just in their works or life, but also in their descendants. In 1900, Albert Edward Winship published a book that detailed the successes of the Edwards family tree, which at the time included one American vice president, three senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 60 medical doctors, 65 college professors, 75 military officers, 100 lawyers, and 100 preachers. It just goes to show the kind of impact we can have on our family's future when we surrender to the Lord and raise our children to fear and honor Him. And that's the end of another episode of Giants of the Faith. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this look into the life of one of the preeminent theologians and scholars of the last 300 years. If you like what you're getting from Giants of the Faith, please head to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and give a rating and review. Until next time, God bless. 